It is so good to see each and every one of you here this morning. We appreciate your attendance. We welcome you. It's good to see familiar faces, as always, amongst us, and it's good to have our members here as well. We, uh, it's a very special day, you know, this first day of the week. It's a day that we set aside that we can come together and encourage one another and do these things that God has commanded us to do, and what an encouraging day it can be to us. And we thank each and every one of you for coming here and being a part of it. I wanted to um, call to our attention this morning something that we talk about a lot, but maybe not quite so much in this manner. I want to talk today about the life of the soul. You know, we talk about our souls quite a bit, don't we? When we think about um, where our souls might end up one day. Um, we understand that there's a soul that lives within this body. And so what I thought I would do this morning is, is talk a little bit about that soul that inhabits these bodies and look at it from the idea of, the, indeed, this life uh, or this soul that we have has a life. And so that's what we will focus on the, this morning. And wanted to approach it in this way and in, in talking about how we might um, consider the life of our body. It has a beginning. It has a time when it faces death. And then there's something that comes after that. And in between, there's a time that we inhabit these bodies. And there's things that we uh, do that are important and where that soul will eventually end up. So let's begin by uh, considering the obvious, that if we talk about the life cycle of a soul, that it has to start somewhere. That there has to be a beginning of our soul. There has to be a birth to our soul. And scripture tells us that indeed there is. Not too long ago, I delivered a message about the sanctity of life and some of the points that I'm going to make here were in that lesson I won't belabor them too much because hopefully you, you remember that but it, it is indeed important and it fits in with our discussion here about the very fact that there is a beginning to our soul consider this in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 7 it says then the Lord formed man out of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living being. So we know from the very beginning, of course, when God made the first man, that this is indeed how he did it. And it's important to see the, 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 the elements that are in this, because they're going to come into play a little bit later. He says that he formed man from the dust of the ground. He took the things from which he had already created. Remember when it talks about in Genesis chapter 1, in the very beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It talks about how he created the plant life and, and the animal life. And on that sixth day, he created man. And this is how he did it. He formed him from the dust of the ground, from the things that he had made. And he breathed into him life. And it says man became a living being. And that's important for us to understand. 
We have passages like this from Psalm 139 when David is lamenting and, and, and pondering the very fact that God had made him. In Psalm 139 there, verses 13 and 14, he says, For you have formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. You see, David understood about creation. Not just about Adam. God created that first man. But God's hand in creating all life. Here's David, these thousands of years later, when he talks about his creation, how he formed him in his mother's womb, and how he is skillfully and wonderfully made. Now, of course, we understand the process by which we are conceived and born in this life, but let's not take God out of that equation. Because we have passages like this that help us to understand that a little bit better. From Acts chapter 17, beginning in verse 24, says, the God who made the world and all things in it. Now, we understand that, don't we, right? God made the world and all things in it. Go back to Genesis and see that indeed God made the world and all things in it. But look what Paul says there in verse 25. Since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. Now, interesting about that word gives. That's present tense, isn't it? Not gave, but gives. Since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. Let's not discount God's hand in the continuation of the world. Look what it says in verse 26. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth. In verse 28. For in him we live and move and exist. Some translations there say, live and move and have our being. Isn't that powerful to think about? That in him we live and move and exist. That his hand is still a part of this world. Some people like to take God in and out of the world, don't they? When, when bad things happen, they want to blame God. Or, or why would God allow such a thing to happen? And when good things happen... You know, people are quick to, to, to praise God, but are they so quick to give him credit when things happen to other people? Or when things befall us such are common to man? The world likes to take God in and out of the equation. God's always in the equation. He himself gives to all people life and breath. And all things. So we see that there is a beginning of the soul, and it is indeed that which God places in our bodies, the soul that we have. So if there is a birth of a soul, then it would naturally follow that there is a life of the soul. And there's a couple of ways that we, well, there's many ways that we could look at this, but I, I chose two for us to consider. And this is the way that Paul talks about um, our lives in a couple of different ways. He talks about our life as a vessel that we inhabit. Look in uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. You know, this is one way of looking at 
the life that which we have. And remember, we talk about that our soul uh, inhabits this body that we have on this earth. And Paul talks about this body as, as vessels. In 1 Thessalonians 4, beginning in verse 1, it says, Finally then, brethren, we request, request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus, that as you receive from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and praise God, just as you actually do walk, that you may excel still more. For you know that what commandments we gave you by the authority of our Lord Jesus, for this is the will of God, your sanctifi- uh, sanctification that is, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. So see, there's the possession of the vessel. And in this context, what Paul is saying is that there are certain ways that you ought to inhabit this body. And it ought to be such a way that is pleasing to God. Pick up in verse 5. Not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God, and that no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter, because the Lord is the avenger of all these things, just as we also told you before we solemnly warned you. See, there's a, there's a wrong way to possess the vessel, right? Paul says, not as the Gentiles do. Verse 7, for God has not called, you, uh, called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. Consequently, he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but the God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. You see, there's, there's an indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Romans 8, verses 9 and 11 talks about that, indeed, the Holy Spirit dwells within those who have accepted Jesus Christ. Those who have put on Christ. Remember what, what Peter says there in Acts chapter 2 and verse 38, Repent and be, and be baptized, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You see, there's a Spirit... The Holy Spirit comes and dwells with our spirit if we are indeed true children of His. So there is a vessel that we inhabit, and this is part of the life of the soul. Paul also talks about the idea that our bodies are like a tent. And if any of you have ever ever tent camped or been in a tent for any period of time, you know it's really a temporary dwelling, isn't it? You wouldn't want to live in a tent forever, would you? Look over in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Understanding that, that a tent is indeed a, a temporary dwelling. You know, when the children of Israel are coming out of the land of Egypt and they build the tabernacle. You know, the tabernacle was built to be portable. Because they indeed were moving around, living in tents as they were coming out of Egypt. And so there was this portability in that as they were headed to set up the land in Canaan and eventually establish in Jerusalem the temple, which would be the permanent home. But the idea of a tent is temporary. Paul puts it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning verse 1. For we know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For indeed this house we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven, inasmuch as we, having put it on, shall not be found naked. For indeed, while we were in this tent, we groan, being burdened, because we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed, in order that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. You see, there's there's a longing to put off this tent. 
There's a longing to put off this mortality, to put on something that is immortal, at least for the child of God. Verse 5, now he has prepared us for this very purpose, is God who gave us the Spirit as a pledge. There's the Holy Spirit again. He gave us the Spirit as a pledge. Therefore, being always of good courage and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. We walk by faith, not by sight. We are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be home with the Lord. Therefore, also, we have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. There is this tent that we dwell in. There's a time that we're going to put off this dwelling place. What's going to be left is going to be our soul. And we're going to have to appear before the judgment seat of Christ to give an account for the things that we have done while we were in this body. Brethren, that ought to be a sobering thought. To know that we're going to have to stand in front of our Creator and tell Him the things that we have done in this side of this body while we were dwelling in this tent. So we want to make sure that the things that we can tell our Lord are the good things. Are the things that we have done in service to Him. And praise to Him. To bring glory to Him. And not to walk as the Gentiles walk. So as mentioned there in verse 10, we must appear before the judgment seat of Christ. There is a time when this vessel, this body is going to decay. We're going to leave this dwelling, this vessel. That is the death of this body. Ecclesiastes 12 and verse 7 is a familiar text to us, isn't it? Then the dust will return to the earth as it was, and the Spirit will return to God who gave it. Now, isn't that a nice closed loop on what we read there from Genesis about how God took dust from the ground and formed man and breathed into him life and, God, and man became a living being? Look what Solomon says about the end of that time. The dust goes back to the ground and the soul goes back to God who gave it. In the perfect circle of how that happens. So you see, there is a coming a time when we put off this body and it goes back to the dirt. But our soul lives on in eternity. In Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 7, it says, And inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes the judgment. So there's that putting off of the body. But our soul continues. And it is our soul that goes to judgment. As we read there in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 10, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ and give an account for the things that we did while we were in that body. But there is indeed a time when we will put off this body. But our soul continues. And so as we continue on and, and, and see the progression here, it makes sense that there is some kind of final destination for the soul. Because you see, the soul is eternal. But there is a destination for our souls. Look with me in Matthew chapter 25. 
Matthew chapter 25. Our Lord's teaching on this is, is so perfectly clear. And again, so amazingly sobering. In Matthew chapter 25, our Lord speaks of the coming judgment. Beginning verse 31, he says, But when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all his angels with him, and he will sit on the glorious throne, and all the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep on his right hand and the goats on his left. And the king will say to those on his right, Come, you are blessed of my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared to you from the foundation of the world. So here's that separation that we're talking about. There is going to be a separation between those who are righteous and those who have practiced evil. He go on to say about those who are considered righteous are the ones who have shown love to his neighbor, to his brother, who has, has taken care of them while they were hungry and clothed them while they were naked and taken them in when they had no place to live, fed them, give them something to, something to drink. Verse 40, and the king will answer to say to them, truly I say to you, to the extent you did this to one of my brothers of mine, even the least of them, you have done it to me. Those are the ones who, will, who, who are, are seated on his right hand. Those who have loved their neighbor as they have been instructed to do. But what about those on the left hand? Verse 41, then he will also say to those on his left, depart from me, accursed ones, into eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. You see that? You see there's a place for our soul. There's a place of righteousness. There's a place for those who are accursed. And he goes on to say that those who enter into that place of the accursed are the ones who did not do those things a neighbor should have done. Did not clothe when they were naked. Did not feed when they were hungry. Did not give something to drink when they were thirsty. Those are the ones who have not practiced righteousness. Come down to verse 45 again. Then he will answer to them and say, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to the least of these, you did not do it to me. To the extent that you did not do it to the least of these, you did not do it to me. And look what's said in verse 46. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but to the righteous into eternal life. So you see there's two destinations for the soul. There's one that goes into eternal punishment, and then there's righteous who go into eternal life. So we can look at this as the two possible destinations for our soul after we have put off this body. And after we have stood before our judge and given an account for the things that we have done in this life, we will be in one of two groups. These will either go away into eternal punishment or go away into eternal life. Obviously, we understand this difference, don't we? This division. Let's think about some of the things that are, that are part of this division. Let's think about this idea of second death. Look over in Revelation chapter 20. 
I've got some verses here, but I want to have this handy. This term second death is unique to the book of Revelation. John uses it four times here in the book of Revelation. But the second death, for those who are on the left here, those who enter into eternal punishment, look what it said about the second death. It says, but for the cowardly and unbelieving and, ad- and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Now, I don't know about you, but that doesn't sound like a very pleasant place, to put it mildly. And to think about the people that will be there. We're not talking about um, any uh, righteous people. We're talking about those who practice unrighteousness. Murderers, immoral persons, abominable, unbelieving, cowardly. Sometimes we think about that, that hell is just going to be for the very worst. Well, it is. But it's also going to be for those who do not practice what God has told them to practice. For the second death on the eternal life side, in chapter 2 and verse 11, he says, He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. And again in chapter 20 and verse 6, it says, Blessed and holy is the one who has put on the first resurrection. Over these the second death has no power. So you see those who are part of the first resurrection, those who have put on Christ and have died to sin and have come out of the waters of baptism to walk in newness of life. If we remain in that until death, the second death has no power over us. We won't suffer the second death. Rather, we will be raised to eternal life. Here in chapter 20 in Revelation, beginning of verse 4, says, And I saw thrones, and they sat upon them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of the testimony of Jesus, and because of the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received the mark of the forehead on their, uh, uh, on their hand, and they came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part of the first resurrection over those who the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. Now who is that that are priests of God and will reign with Jesus Christ for a thousand years? It's us. Peter talks about in his writing about becoming that holy priesthood. We are indeed those people. We are reigning with Christ right now. Those of us who have put on Christ. We are indeed that royal priesthood. Brethren, Christ is reigning right now. He has been seated at the right hand of God and he is reigning right now. But there is a coming a time when there's going to be a judgment. And then there's going to be that separation. Another way to look at this eternal punishment is the idea of eternal destruction. This comes from 2 Thessalonians 1 and verse 9. 
It says these will pay the penalty of eternal or everlasting destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Now, eternal destruction, that sometimes is kind of hard for us to wrap our heads around, isn't it? Because the destruction part is a doing away with, to bring to ruin, to destroy. So how do you eternally destroy something? Well, I have everlasting there in parentheses. Some translations use it. I think the New King James calls that everlasting destruction. Does that not give you a little bit more idea of how terrible hell is? That it's not this, that you just go there and die and you're relieved, but you go there and continually die. Everlasting. Our Lord, in his teaching in Mark 9, and throughout there, but in verse 48, he talks about that this place of hell is where the worm never dies and the eternal fire is never quenched. It's not just a, a, a destruction and a doing away with, it's an eternal destruction, an everlasting destruction. If you're there still in Revelation 20, look over in verse uh, 10. It says, And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beasts and the false prophets are there also, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. You see, brethren, it's not just a, a dying and, and, and being done away with. It's an eternal dying. It's eternal destruction. It's eternal torment, day and night, every day, forever and ever. The other side of that is eternal, eternal glory. 2 Timothy 2 and verse 10 Paul says, For this reason I endure all the things for the sake of those who are chosen, so that they may also obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus, and with it eternal glory. How bad the picture of is of eternal destruction being eternally, everlastingly destroyed. The other side is that great. Eternal glory. Being in eternal glory being in the presence of God, away from the presence of the Lord. Think about something when you think about the destruction of the ungodly. God is not there at all. You know, in this world, even ungodly people get some blessings from God, right? Jesus talks about how God causes it to rain on the just and the unjust. There are certain blessings that we have in this world, whether or not we're obedient to God or not. The picture is not like that in hell. God's presence is nowhere. You're away from the presence of God in eternal destruction. But in eternal glory, think about what you enjoy. Eternal life in the presence of God. Hell is also talked about as a place of darkness. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them into the pits of darkness reserved for judgment, 2 Peter 2 and verse 4. You know, darkness is not just the absence of light, which it is, but darkness is also of evil. It's spoken of that way in Scripture. It's not a place that you want to be. 
but eternal life. Heaven is a place of light. In Revelation 22 and verse 5, it says, And there will be uh, no longer any night, for they will not have need of light or a lamp nor the light of of the sun, because the Lord God will illumine them, and they will reign forever and ever. So just as uh, terrible and evil is, is in darkness and the absence of light, the opposite is true in the presence of God. We have no need of a lamp or the light of the sun. What is it that will illumine those who are serving uh, a, a lifetime in, in, in heaven and eternal glory? It is God that illumines them. There's no need for the sun. No need to light a lamp. God's presence is what provides the light. Isn't that a wonderful thought to think of? And doesn't it shine the light on how terrible the other consequence is? Eternally in the presence of God. Now we set out talking about the life cycle of the soul. And we see that, indeed, our souls are eternal. Once our soul has been breathed into our bodies, we inhabit that body for a while, but there's a time when we put off that body. And our soul will live on in eternity. My prayer, brethren, those who may not have accepted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, I pray that you understand the stark difference in the two places. And I pray that you understand what's at stake. That a lifetime spent in eternal torment ought to give you reason to put on Jesus Christ. To want to spend a life in eternity, in eternal light leave you with this in Revelation chapter 22, beginning in verse 1. I stumble over my words all the time and look for wonderful and beautiful ways to express what I'm trying to express to you. But let me stand aside and let God's word express what he wants you to know about heaven. Revelation 22, beginning in verse 1. And he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb, in the middle of its street. And on either side of the river was the tree of life, bearing twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were the healing of the nations. And there shall no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and the Lamb shall be in it, and his bondservants shall serve him. And they shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads. And there shall no longer be any night, and they shall have no need of the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, because the Lord God shall illumine them, and they shall reign forever and ever. That's the life we should want for our souls. That's the eternal life that we should want for our souls. And I beg of you to make sure that you are living in this body in a way that can ensure that your eternal soul is spent in this kind of presence. 
in the presence of God forever. If you're not a child of God, I encourage you to surrender in baptism to the will of God and put on Christ and become a citizen of his kingdom. If you are a child of God and you're unsure of where your soul might spend eternity, brethren, make your call and election sure. Increase your faith. Do what you need to do to strengthen the bond that you have with Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior. Whatever your needs might be, you can let them be known by coming forward as we stand and sing to encourage you.